Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Today, we are revisiting a live event recorded in November 2017 at the Mean Queen restaurant in Sitka. The theme was wild language, stories of miscommunications, seeing things in a new light, and finding the right words. And it was put on as part of the Wild Language Festival hosted by the Island Institute. In this edition of Sitka Tales Tales, Island Institute writer-in-residence, Christian Cordero, joined local storytellers. We have wonderful storytellers lined up for you, but how we do it here is people have six minutes to tell a story. So we have tellers that have been thinking about what they're gonna tell to the theme, our wild language theme, which is stories of miscommunication, seeing things in new light and finding the right words. We're gonna tell a couple stories and then you have a chance to tell a spontaneous two-minute story. There is a jar back there that you can put your name on a card and tell a two-minute story to the theme. Anyway, this is a lot of fun. I really appreciate the tellers who work and think about what their stories are gonna be. I'm gonna introduce Tina, who's our first teller. And I want to say one thing about this series is that no matter what you think you know about people in Sitka, you're going to learn new things through this. But anyway, let me introduce Tina. Tina, this is her description of herself, is a 20-something transplant to Sitka, brought here for a year of service and captured by the magnificence of Sitka. She is the Children's Program Coordinator at SAFE, a new fan of hiking, and a longtime obsessor of coffee. Her title, Mana, Mundane to Magical. And this is a story about learning to speak to pre-verbal miniature humans and how a spontaneous trip to the Oregon coast led to seeing an act of nature in a whole new light. Okay, Tina. Woo! Well, I feel like that's the whole story, so pretty much there. No. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, so, have you, have you ever found yourself like face to face, eye to eye, with a pre-verbal miniature human who has something very, very important to say, but you don't know what it is? Has anyone ever experienced that before? Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of people have. Great. So, I would like to think that I am like an expert at um, understanding this, <laughs> the babblings and exuberance of the, the miniature human. But on March 13th, 2015, um, I was proven very wrong. And at the time, um, I was living in Portland, Oregon, working at Starbucks, and I was an opener, so I worked 3.30 a.m. to noon. And I love my job, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> I used to have a question every day where I'd ask people, a question and it was so fun for me and our regulars got really into it so my question on this particular day was if you could be transplanted anywhere in the world where would you go and my answer to this question was the coast I hadn't been in a while and I was like yes I want to taste that air so um, I got off my shift and got in my car went to turn left and um, to go home and found myself turning right and I stopped off at my favorite taqueria got a fajita burrito and I hit the highway I found myself an hour and a half later in Cannon Beach, Oregon, 
And this was so spontaneous that I <laughs> wore my uniform, which was like black tights and a black skirt. Um, obviously, hasn't changed much, and a black shirt. <laughs> anyway, um, I <laughs> and I had to cut my tights um, so that my toes could snuggle in the sand. So I did so and pranced along the beach for a long while, just so excited to be there. And I look to my left, and I see um, there's a perfect chair that's made out of driftwood. And I was very excited. I had some writing to do. I was working on this like short story that I owed an editor a piece, and I needed to finish writing. So I sat on down, and as soon as I sat down, I hear, ah! And I turn around to find this miniature human, this very round-cheeked, beautiful, curly-haired miniature human who was very upset that I had just sat down. So understanding that I had messed, messed up the piece, um, I tried to stand up. I like braced myself on the back of the, the chair, and <laughs> she yells again, ah! So I'm frozen, half squatting, staring at this miniature human of about 18 months old. And <laughs> she just looks at me and she goes, mana. So I kind of look at her back, and I'm losing my balance now. I tumble onto the sand next to me, and I look at her, thinking that she's going to be disturbed by my very graceful fall on the sand, and she does not, she's unfazed, and she goes over to the chair. She lifts up the bottom of the chair. She looks at it, and she goes, mana, and then she slams it shut. Like she had had like a jar with like a bug in it of some sort, and she didn't want it to get out, so she slams it. She looks, looks at me and she goes, Mana. And she stands up. Her plump diaper helped bring her to her feet. And she wobbled on over to this like grassy area where she started collecting grass. And she returns and she hands me half of the grass. And I take it and say, thank you. And she goes over to the chair. She opens it and she sprinkles the grass on the bottom of the seat. And then she looks at me with this anger, anger in her eyes. Like I had missed a planning mission and Captain was very upset with me. I run over and I put mine down too and she slams it shut again. And then she looks very proud of herself, very excited that she had done her job. And she sits down, she looks at me and she goes, Mana. And I just look at her affirmatively and say, Mana, yeah. <laughs> And at that very moment, a large giant human calls Melody, and she looks at me, she puts her finger to her mouth, she goes, shh, mana, and she wobbles away. <laughs> I, to this day, have absolutely no idea what mana is. I sat in the sand for probably, it must have been a half an hour, I just sat there, and at least a dozen times I went over and lifted up the seat and I found our sprinkled grass and I and wet sand and that was it under the driftwood and I just would close it and open it thinking that if I did that enough times mana would appear in my eyesight and it didn't but mana was there and I would love to think that it's like some magical fairy land underneath this driftwood or I don't know, maybe a monster, like a really cute monster you have to feed every day, I'm not sure. But it's beautiful, and I can't look at driftwood the same. I smile, and every time I see it around, I just get so excited that there's another kingdom of fairies or another monster waiting to be fed. So that's how I learned about mana. <laughs>
So I have the pleasure of introducing our next storyteller, who I get to work with, which is wonderful. And he's from New York, and um, he came here as a volunteer. He's been here for a few months, and he has a pretty awesome story to tell you. So here's Suraj. Uh, hi, everyone. Thank you for coming. So I grew up in, as Tina said, uh, in, in New York, in a small town in upstate New York. And my parents are from Pakistan. And they moved uh, to the US just a couple years before I was born. And where I grew up, pretty much everyone I knew when I was a kid did not look like me. Uh, we were one of the very few brown families in rural upstate New York. I was the only brown kid at my school. And I grew up feeling very ashamed of my parents' culture and language and religion and background. And I really wanted to blend in and fit in. And this manifested in a lot of different ways. One of those ways was just that I, I didn't want to like have friends over at home. I didn't want to like learn my parents' language. They would speak to me in Urdu, and I would talk back to them in English, little things like that. But that started becoming untenable after a few years, especially in the early 2000s, when I started getting bullied more and more, and Islamophobia started being more on the rise, and discrimination. And um, I realized eventually, I think my parents realized much earlier than I did, but I realized eventually that there was a lot of work of communication and talking about identity that needed to happen um, between my family and the broader community, and also across our country and the world. At the time, though, I was a kid, and I didn't really pick up on that, and I just wanted to fit in. And there were so many things that, that happened, so I'll just tell a couple of vignettes. So when I, was, when I was a kid, we used to go on some road trips to visit family who lived a little far away. And some of you might know um, Muslims pray five times a day. And so my family are all quite devout. And so sometimes we would be on a long road trip, and it would be time to pray. And we would be in the middle of nowhere on the stretch of highway, and there would be no mosque anywhere nearby. So we would just pull the car over to the side of the highway. Uh, my dad would go out into the trunk, pull out a couple prayer rugs, lay them out on the grass on the side of the road next to like the litter and the empty Coke bottles and Snicker wrappers. And we would just stand there and pray, um, try to like get it to face as close to Mecca as, as we could figure out um, based on like looking at the sun or whatever. <laughs> um, and sometimes we would be, and there's also a kind of ritual washing of the body that you have to do before you pray, which involves washing your hands, your arms, your face, and your feet. And so sometimes we would be lucky and we would find like a rest stop on the highway that would be like conveniently placed. We might be like near it around prayer time. So we would like go into the rest stop bathroom. My dad and I would like be at the sink, like washing our hands then rolling up our sleeves and washing our arms, getting a few weird looks, like, why are these people washing their arms at a highway rest stop bathroom? Then we'd start like splashing water on our faces, and people would be like, what is happening here? And then we'd start like taking off our shoes and taking off our socks and like putting our feet in the sink. And like people would just be like, Get, I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> um, and those things like made me feel really uncomfortable and ashamed. Um, and I felt like, you know, why are we drawing so much attention to ourselves? And I didn't, I didn't really get why that was important. And I didn't really talk to my dad about why that was important either. But over time, I've started to realize that that was important. So that Muslim people don't just exist on the news, on TV, and movies. 
so that they exist as like a real thing that people see out in the world um, that we all interact with, so that Muslim people become a like reality and not just some figment that we see on screens that maybe like someone might be driving down a stretch of highway in upstate New York and like see like a middle-aged man and his son praying by the side of the road and think like, Muslim people, cool. <laughs> Another funny moment was a few years later when I started to become a little bit more comfortable with my parents' culture. And um, this was when I was in high school, I was studying for the SAT. My best friend Mark used to come over a lot to study for the SAT with me. And uh, when we were, like after a couple hours, his mom, Rachel, would come pick him up. And uh, this went on for a few weeks, and then finally the day before the SAT came, and we had one last study session, and then Mark's mom, Rachel, came to pick him up. And uh, Mark and I were like gathering up our stuff, packing our bags, and my mom and Mark's mom were like standing in the doorway having their little like doorway chat. And as Mark and I walk up to the door, I hear like my mom and Mark's mom are talking, and Mark's mom saying, oh, you know, they've been studying so hard. I'm sure they're going to do great on the test. And my mom goes like, yeah, they're such hardworking boys. They're going to be fine. Now there's just one thing we have left to do. And Rachel goes, what's that? And my mom says, well, we have to shave their heads. <laughs> and my mom, as soon as these words leave her mouth, she looks at me, and I look at her. And in that moment, so much information was exchanged because I knew, I knew that she was referencing this old Pakistani wives' tale, which basically is that if you have to take a test or exert a lot of mental energy, um, if you have long hair, your brain power will be depleted because all of your brain energy will be used to like hold your head up because your hair is so heavy. And so you should shave your head so that you can put more brain energy towards thinking. Um, and so I looked at my mom, and I knew that she was referencing this old wives' tale. And my mom knew that I understood that. Rachel had no idea what was going on. She was freaking out. She's like, you're going to shave my son's... What? Um, and so I look at my mom, and I see the gears turning behind her head. I, I, I see like she's thinking through, like, should I explain this old wives' tale to this woman who has no idea what I'm talking about? Is she going to think that I'm weird? Is she going to think that like Pakistani people don't understand science? Um, like, is she even going to get the joke? Maybe she'll just think I'm not funny. Uh, and I, I could see the panic in her eyes. And Rachel's just standing there. She's like, why shave their heads? Why? And my mom just goes, I don't know. <laughs> and Rachel goes, okay. <laughs> Come on, Mark, let's go. <laughs> um, so there were, there were definitely some, some rocky moments, um, but it actually it was interesting. It wasn't until I got to college and encountered Urdu in an like, academic setting instead of in a cultural setting that I started to really warm up to it and actually started to study it. And now when I, when I look back on these moments, I see how important it was for my parents and family to be open and public about who we were, about our culture, our religion, our identities, our language. And I'm, I'm really grateful that my parents were and are like, involved in interfaith uh, events and, and programs and are public about who they are and public about their, their religion and the way that they live their lives. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my story about miscommunication.
I have the distinct pleasure of introducing Christian Cordero. Uh, Christian is the current international writer in residence in Sitka. He writes in Filipino, Bicol, and Rinconada, and he has also translated Borges, Kafka, Wilde, and Rilke. Two of his most recent poetry collections received the National Book Awards, and in recent years he has produced two feature films. His story tonight is called How I Did Not Become an Astronaut. Give it up for Christian. I apologize for my outfit. It's very cold in your place. <laughs> this doesn't look good in photographs. Uh, the first time I was in an audience like this, I was asked to stand up and declare what I want to be when I grow up. It was terrifying because I was not sure if I would still grow up. And yet I was very sure of what I want to be when I grow up. And I remember that I declared that I wanted to become an astronaut. And I would like to sit now because I have just declared what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> yeah, because I thought we were a family of astronauts. It's impossible, I know to be an astronaut born in a third world country like the Philippines. But just the same, I thought we were a family of astronauts because our word for moon is bulan. And then one day I overheard one of my aunts saying, she's going to bulan. And I had the thought that, wow, she's an astronaut. <laughs> she's going to the Bulan. So one day I tried to, you know, find out how she goes to Bulan. She would go to the moon. And right there and then I saw her take her motorcycle and she would go to the Bulan. It was very easy, you know, going to the moon, just, you know, riding this motorcycle. And I have that feeling that motorcycle is made in Japan. So every since then, I was, you know, I was under that impression that for a family of astronauts, my aunt would always go to the Bulan. It was later on that I realized that Bulan is another town in another province. <laughs> and I'm telling this story because uh, there was this moment in my life that I really got terrified with my teachers. We all get terrified with our teachers anyway. They're asking us to write this formal theme. You remember it? The formal theme, the formal writing. And every summer you would have to write something about your last summer experience. And every All Saints Day, like this is the time we visit the cemetery. And the teacher would ask us to, you know, to write something about the experience of visiting the cemetery. But unfortunately, I don't have dead people yet at that time. So I was a little excited, you know, with the, you know, with the idea that I would visit my mother and my father one day in the cemetery. I just couldn't ask them, like, when will be your time? <laughs> so that, so that I would have something to write in my formal team. But you know, my aunt. 
that aunt who would go to the bulan was the first one in our family who died. And at that time when she died, I really thought that she must have been, you know, she must have gone to the moon. And the reason why she could not return anymore was the fact that the motorcycle got stranded in the moon. You know, like I was thinking that way. But since this is a story of miscommunication, I would like to tell you that, you know, you like the story? But the story never happened. <laughs> there was no aunt. There was no boy who wanted to become an astronaut. But there is a town in the Philippines called Bulan. And one day, when I was old enough to summon, you know, to, to comprehend about death and being an astronaut, I went to Bulan myself. And, uh, I went inside the church, and right there and then, I saw in the altar that the patron saint of this old town in my region is the Immaculate Conception, the woman on the moon. Thank you. Now, Christian just broke a rule. Normally, our tales are true. <laughs> but Christian's so amazing. When I realized this story was a little bit fiction, I was like, that's OK. But anyway, can we clap for our first three tellers again? <laughs> It's a tradition at Sitka Tells Tales to invite audience members to come on stage and tell a spontaneous two-minute story on the night's theme. Here are two of those spontaneous stories from that evening. Thank you. My name is Pat Alexander. I'd like to tell you about a friend of mine that I met many years ago. He's really a better friend of my sister's than mine. His name was Reuben Snake. Has anyone ever heard of him? Among other things, he was a medicine man. And uh, he was once the leader of the National Congress of American Indians. He was very active in the American Indian movement. So I was the old hippie, so I knew about all of that stuff, you know. and. Um, the man was Winnebago, and he was telling my sister, you know, where I come from, the menfolk, when they like what you're saying, they raise their hands up and they say, aho. That means I really approve of what you're saying. I like what you're saying. And this is about miscommunication, and you must always consider your audience, because he was invited to speak in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And those folks down there are different kinds of Pueblo Indian. They speak a language, the common language base is called Tewa. And he said that he, he was talking to them about 
things from his past and trying to gain support for what he was talking about. And when he finished talking, he was feeling kind of bad because nobody said a hope. And uh, he mentioned that to one of the leaders of the Pueblos from Albuquerque. And the man said to him, in the Tewa dialect, Aho means kill him. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. Let's do one more. We have Ben Timby. Hey, everybody. Um, I was just going to tell a story from uh, my college days back in Kentucky. When I was in school in Kentucky, I dated a girl actually from Tennessee. And I went home with her one weekend to meet her family for the first time. And if anyone, I'm sure most people in this room have been through those experiences. It's, uh, it's like kind of a, you know, tense or, you know, a little anxious if you're like the new person and for your partner and everything. And we all went out to Olive Garden with her family. And, uh, <laughs> and I was sitting next to her grandpa, Alpha. Uh, which is a cool southern name. <laughs> I guess it comes from Alpha and Omega from the Bible, you know? It's like the words for God or something. <laughs> and uh, anyway, Alpha uh, was sitting next to me, and I, I was, it was a really entertaining experience and very distracting. I really loved it because Alpha was so full of all these stories, um, and the whole family would be uh, talking about other stuff, and he kept turning to me and telling me stories. And anyway, at one point, during the evening, he turned to me and he said, uh, you know, you're a pretty good-looking young man. When I was your age, I was a pretty good-looking young man. <laughs> and he said, I remember this one day, uh, my mama bought me a brand-new pair of overalls. And uh, boy, was I looking good in them brand-new overalls. <laughs> so uh, I decided I'd go out driving in my, in my pickup truck. So he's like, there I was on the, driving out on the highway, looking good in my brand-new overalls. <laughs> And uh, here's this little lady on the side of the road, and uh, she was wearing short shorts. And, uh, <laughs> and being the gentleman that I, I am, I pull over and I said, ma'am, do you need any assistance? And she said, oh yeah, my tire's flat, can you help me? And he said, well, yes ma'am, I'll help you out. And uh, so he said, there I was, fixing her tire, looking good in my brand new overalls. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> I fixed up that tire and, and I went to leave and she said, oh, uh, is there anything I can pay you? Thank you so much. And he said, oh, no, no, ma'am, you can't pay me. That's all right. And she said, no, please, let me pay you something. And he said, uh, no, ma'am, a girl as pretty as you couldn't pay me nothing, uh, just a common courtesy. And she said, oh, no, please. Oh, you know, I have an idea. Uh, why don't you come with me in the back of my car for a minute? <laughs> and uh, his wife, <laughs> the grandma was like, Alpha. Alpha, you, you, stop, you stop telling this story right now. <laughs> and the, the whole family was like, I think there was a lull in the conversation. And <laughs> grandma's, grandpa's telling this story about getting in the backseat of this car with <laughs> this girl with short shorts. And anyway, he said, oh, no, I'm telling my story. Let me tell my... And he's like 95. So he's really feisty. And he says... Uh, <laughs> So I get the backseat of the car, looking good in my brand new overalls. And uh, he's like, and 
And I look over and she starts taking off her shorts. And everyone jumps like, oh, Grandpa, Grandpa, shut up. And he said, so I turned to her and I said, Ma'am, I don't know what you're intending, but I ain't about to trade these brand new overalls for them little B shorts. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. You never know what's coming. What a great way to end the night. Thank you for listening to Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. And thank you to our storytellers today, Tina Bachmeyer, Siraj Sendu, Kristen Cordero, Pat Alexander, and Ben Timby. Thank you also to Raven Radio and the Mean Queen Restaurant. To find out more about Sitka Tells Tales and to hear other episodes of the podcast, you can visit artchangeinc.org. Your host this evening was Ellen Frankenstein, and our theme song is Clinktail by Poddington Bear. This production of Sitka Tells Tales, Stories from the Vault, was supported in part by a grant from the Alaska Humanities Forum and the National Endowment for the Humanities, a federal agency. Uh-huh.